Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome to the latest episode of Good Trouble. Uh, my name is Gregory Ball. I work with King Boston and my co-host, my friend, my comrade, and my compadre, Reggie Williams. How are you doing, sir? Good to see you. Good to be here, Greg. Happy Friday. Glad to be here for another episode. Yes, and today we have one of my favorite folks in the city of Boston, always Natalie dressed, but it's because he means business. We uh, we uh, have go back on a on a regular basis, always talking trash back and forth together. But I know I know Reggie, you've got a whole bunch of information on our on our uh, our esteemed guests. I'll let you shoot it and do the intro. Sure thing. So, you know, we're very excited to have Mr. Shigun Idowu, president and CEO of the Black Economic Council of Massachusetts here on with us today. Shigun, how are you? Excellent. And uh, any any information you share uh, about our, you know, we went to high school together and everything. So um, I will absolutely sue for defamation. I want you to know that <laughs> at the outset, all of that stays with us. What happened in the past stays in the past. And uh, Greg, I did get the memo that this was a casual thing, so I did not wear the tie. Um, so I hope I get credit for that. I, you, you absolutely do. You absolutely yeah. do. So, man, <laughs> so it's interesting that you started off talking about high school because that was one of the things that I wanted to get started. You know, many times people see you now and they see you as representing Beckma and they see the suits and all of that. But I always believe that who you are today has a, a link to who you are in the past. How did you get this... Um, mindset. Where did this this desire to be connected to business and and um, and the work that you're doing today? How did that start for you? Through total and massive failure. That was my, <laughs> <laughs> that was my high school. I mean, Reggie can attest to it. First of all, um, you know, uh, I had a huge afro that every once in a while I would have it in braids with the shells. Uh, you know, uh, it was back in the days where Jabot jeans were cool and the white Air Force Ones, uh, and you wore two, two, uh, two shirts, you know, one, one with color, one, one without. Um, terrible days that we all hope to forget. Uh, and I've certainly deleted all those pictures off Facebook. But um, yeah, you know, uh, I, no, nothing I ever did as a kid or as a young person or uh, even in college um, would have made me think I'd be where I am today. I mean, when I graduated high school, uh, I graduated, uh, thank you, Lordy. I had a 1.999 GPA with the repeating bar over it. Uh, my guidance counselor at that time uh, had told me to start considering trades because there was no way I was going to college. Um, and uh, and yeah, you know, and, and there was a lot of stuff going on. So I, I was not paying attention to anything going on around me. Um, but uh, there was one really important influence in my life that at least was kind of a guiding star, no matter how much I was diverting off the path, uh, which was my grandfather, uh, the Reverend Earl Lawson, who was a pastor in Malton, Massachusetts, ran or pastor Emmanuel Baptist Church before moving to Hartford to found another church. Um, you know, he was, uh, I, you know, he lived in Connecticut my whole life. And uh, I just would remember when he would come visit, he would stay with us at our house in Rosendale. And those were always the most important moments of the year for me. So uh, I guess to kind of wrap up that part is that, uh, you know, he, you know, uh, graduated from Morehouse College, met Dr. King, became one of the chief lieutenants of Massachusetts during the Civil Rights Revolution. And uh, so, you know, when I graduated high school, somehow, you know, I got my act together, uh, mostly because he, he was my one and only uh, pen pal. Uh, you know, he came from the era where, you know, you write letters and that's how you stay in touch with people. And he would write me letters and I would write him letters back. And uh, disappointing him was um, something that had a huge impact on me, you know, making me feel guilty and bad that I disappointed this guy I looked up to. So I went to UMass Dartmouth for a year. They have this program where if you're, you know, need some help, you go there. I went there for a year, boosted my grades, went to Morehouse. And uh, that kind of set me on the path to where I am today. Wow, that's incredible. It's always it's, it's beautiful to hear that the the impact of your grandfather really touched you and kind of hit you at that right time because you know that that age of coming out of high school is it's when we're trying to figure it out and you know if you get the wrong information at that time you could go you know in a completely different direction. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, you know, I was I I am a very very lucky 
person, uh, you know, because it's my grandfather, it's my parents, and it's also where I grew up. I mean, I, I often joke, although it's not really a joke, I grew up on the second pew of 12th Baptist Church. And, you know, if you're, if you grew up in Boston, particularly in the nineties, you know, like 12th Baptist was the it church. I don't know what it is about the black community, but there, there's always that one church that that's the place where everyone goes and it, mm -hmm. it, it makes it cycles, to, you know, over the decades of, of where that should be. But in the nineties, it was 12th, which had Michael Haynes as the senior pastor and, um, you know, had so many other notables that attended the church, but what was more important beyond, you know, the leadership and the who's who attending were the, the members who poured into me and, um, uh, and would not let me go astray. You know, this was also the time where, um, you know, other people could, could hit your kids, uh, with your permission. So, uh, 12th Baptist, because every, almost every black person went there, uh, there wouldn't be a place I could go as a young kid where I wouldn't see a member of Tough Baptist Church. He'd be like, that's Rachel's boy uh, acting up. And they'd come over and be like, I'm about to say your mother and your father. And those are the worst words you could ever hear uh, mm -hmm. from, from another adult. So, um, but yeah, I mean, my grandfather was that guide in light, but certainly, you know, the, the wraparound support from the community. Uh, um, yeah, I wouldn't be here without, without those folks. So that led you to get to, to Morehouse. Um... So tell us about your, your time there, like where, you know, how that was influential, because I feel like that's a, a major touchstone for you as well. Yeah, well, you know, it was, uh, it was for, you know, uh, there's a young woman, her name is Stevie Renee, uh, and she just got married, so I can't remember her married name, but uh, she's a Spelman graduate, class 2012, and there's something she said on Twitter, in the before times when Twitter was a fun place to be. Um, she said, you know, the Atlanta University Center, which is comprised of Morehouse, Spelman, and Clark Atlanta University, is like Disney World dipped in ghetto. And, you know, that was probably the most apt and accurate description I've ever heard of a place uh, in my life. And that's what Morehouse uh, was on the AUC. Um, you know, uh, coming from Boston, where uh, pretty much all the leaders were white, uh, where, uh, you know, a lot of the institutions were white. Um, in a city that is billed as white, uh, you know, to go from here and then to go to Atlanta, where it's the complete opposite. Um, you know, at that time, it was the Mecca for black people, um, you know, just to be surrounded by black brilliance and greatness um, and folks who just, you know, all had the same goal and mission, uh, which was to uplift their families and their communities. Um, uh, you know, I cannot stress enough the importance of being at a historically black college or university because um, it's so much more than what you get in the classroom. Um, so being in that environment, for sure, uh, you know, in, has influenced me. I mean, it's it's why I'm so sure of myself and why I don't back down uh, here in Boston, because I was around a bunch of people who reinforced that to be black is not to be less. Um, but rather, you know, that, you know, we are we are not descended from fearful people. Um, and so therefore you need to step into your power that your ancestors um, uh, left behind. Um, and so, uh, yeah, that's, it's, that was a hugely formative experience. Then of course, you know, uh, Reggie and I knew each other in high school and then uh, got to extend that friendship down in Atlanta uh, at Morehouse. And so, um, so to even have the Boston connection was, was great for keeping me grounded of knowing of what I was going back to. Um, and what I was there for, you know, Morehouse, um, uh, Robert Michael Franklin, who was, uh, the 12th press 10th president, excuse me, um, said, uh, you know, Morehouse is the international headquarters of black male excellence, but that excellence has to be used for something. And so, you know, having Boston folks around me reminded me of why I was getting that education and that experience to begin with. It definitely takes a village. And as you're talking about not only the traditions that you experienced growing up in the church here in Boston, but then also, uh, I think, you know, Disney, would you, would you say something dipped in ghetto? Disneyland dipped in ghetto. <laughs> Disneyland dipped in ghetto is uh, incredibly accurate. It trends well for the AC, definitely, as it's uh, continuing to grow and develop over time. Um, any thoughts on what about... The experience at Morehouse, my experience at Morehouse was very different. Uh, you know, as someone who came in freshman year, was excited to get out of Boston, was excited to be in Atlanta and had a completely different type of cultural experience, um, you know, stepping into the AUC and being able to find, I think, a lot of 
joy and acceptance and being surrounded by, as you said, black male excellence, black excellence in general. How do we continue to carry those traditions forward, continue to actually make those things more available in spaces that really aren't designed for our success? You know, thinking of cities like Boston, um, and more, more often, I think, with this north-south divide, as we look at the, the state of the country, how do we continue to really grow and lean into that? Yeah, well, I mean, the thing about, uh, you know, the experience was all the more possible in a place like Morehouse because we were surrounded by Black people. And, uh, and so it, it was like, it was a given that we are supposed to be here, uh, which, of course, is way different in Boston, which is why I say, you know, uh, you know, get, getting four years of that was really important uh, for bracing yourself when you step out of that bubble. Um, you know, how, how I did it, I guess, down there, I mean, I started off with who my relationships were with. I mean, my three best friends today are folks that, uh, you know, Travis Randall was in room uh, 312, um, Rashad Moore was in room uh, 309, Eddie was in 319, I was in 311. And so uh, it was the folks that I found um, living in LOC that, um, by the way, did you hear that they canceled uh, homecoming? Uh, anyway, we'll talk about that later. Uh, that, that, that hurt my spirit. Um, if no one has ever been to an HBCU homecoming, I mean, you know, before you die, you gotta, you gotta go live in heaven on earth and, and it's a homecoming at an HBCU. But, um, you know, how we replicate it is first of all, taking up space, knowing that you're supposed to be there. You know, one of the things that we talk about at BECMA is that when we're talking about opening up new stores um, or putting on events, uh, I'm not gonna be limited to doing it in Roxbury, Dorchester, and Mattapan or Hyde Park because someone told me that's where black people are supposed to do their stuff. Uh, I'm gonna go everywhere because the whole city belongs to us. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we're, we're the reason why it is successful. Um, and so, you know, I think the first part is, is taking up that space. And then I think it's also uh, supporting one another. You know, the, the thing about the AUC is that as much as there are egos, there is no ego in the sense of, um, you know, we all know that we're, that we belong there and we all push each other, at least from, from my experience, what I saw where people were pushing each other to do better because um, no one wanted to be somewhere alone. Um, you know, of course there was the internal, you know, if someone wanted to be president of the student government association or buddies with faculty, but uh, at the end of the day, you know, we all supported one another. And whenever someone from outside the community tried to, um, keep one of us down immediately we identified uh with the fact that we were from the same place have the same goal and you're not going to do that to our brother or sister so i think the other piece of it is uh i'm not going to unity is not the word i'm thinking of um but but the collaboration um and working toward the goal i mean i think what keeps a lot of us back sometimes is um uh this idea that there can only be one um which is something that um that white people have told us um but we, we don't need to operate in that manner. So I think those are, off the top of my head, those are the things that, um, at least when I was down there, helped to uh, make it a great experience. And then for the personal thing for me, which not everyone, you know, my grandfather graduated from there. So I was happy to, I was just excited to be in, a, in the place that formed this individual that I looked up to. And so I think for that, and then also my path, you know, I, I applied to Morehouse uh, when I was in high school. And they wrote me back a letter that said, uh, you know, dear Shigan, ha, 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 ha. Why would you waste our time? You know, I mean, <laughs> you know, 1.9 GPA and getting into Morehouse. Um, and so, so I, I uh, was more grateful for being there because I had a, a different path for getting there. So I, I wanted to take advantage of every opportunity as possible. So, you know, I know that that's the foundation of where, where you started, but where, let's talk about some of the work that you're doing today. Tell us about BECMA and kind of the formation of BECMA and, and how that came to be. Mm -hmm. Well, um, the Black Economic Council of Massachusetts was formed in November of 2015. And this was following um, a, a really influential report that was published by the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston called The Color of Wealth in Boston. And even if people have not read the report, they have certainly heard uh, the statistics in that report, uh, which you know are, are now being disputed. But at the end of the day, it showed the huge racial wealth gap in the greater Boston area. And you know, knowing that Massachusetts is also a leader uh, in uh, a, a stark racial wealth gap, um, you know, the, the community was like, "Now nah, we we can't 
we can't accept that anymore. Um, you know, a lot of our black business leaders and just community leaders in general are known throughout our community because of the work that they began doing in the 60s during the civil rights revolution. And so 50 years later to read a report that says that in spite of all of that backbreaking and tireless work that you've done to change the conditions of black people uh, in the city and the state, that it all amounted to a single dollar figure uh, for net worth uh, was extremely alarming. Um, and so there was a huge meeting uh, in Prince Hall, about 700 people Black people came out um, not to yell and complain and argue about how we got there, but really to talk about solutions and how we address it. And so, uh, and I got to say, I was at that meeting and I, I got to tell you, it's one of the only community meetings I've ever been at where that, where the whole meeting was about solutions as opposed to yelling and complaining for the first 50 and then talking about setting up another meeting to talk about the solutions in the last 10 minutes. Um, and so uh, one of the things that came out of that meeting and many other conversations after was BECMA, uh, because the founders believed then and now that if we're going to eliminate the racial wealth gap, one way to do that is by supporting Black businesses, because Black businesses locate in our communities, they're responsible for hiring the majority of Black people in our communities, and they give back to our communities financially and otherwise. And so uh, it just made sense to create an organization specifically focused on Black businesses, because there was none. Um, most other advocacy groups have a broad uh, menu of, of issues that they focus on. And so the intent was to make sure we had one entity that focused on this specific issue and population uh, to better advocate. So today our mission is to advance the economic well-being of Black businesses, organizations, and people. Uh, and we do that through our advocacy. We do that through leadership uh, uh, development. Um, and business development, as well as strategic partnerships. Um, and you know, today the exciting thing is that we're representing uh, the 2,000 employer uh, black employer firms that are keeping 17,000 residents off of unemployment. And these firms, uh, prior to the pandemic, were generating two billion dollars in revenue. Um, and there, are, you know, aside from that, there are 25,000 black sole proprietors in the Commonwealth. And so we are every day. Uh, uh, pushing folks uh, like the governor and the legislature, municipal leaders like mayors and uh, uh, city councilors to push policies that are going to better impact our businesses, remove barriers, and also get some money to our folks, which has for a long time gone everywhere but to our folks. Mm. Yeah. I know that the, the, it's very interesting because you, as a statewide organization, you know, it's very, it'd be very easy and simple to focus on Boston. And I think most people probably think Boston when they think Massachusetts, but with your statewide focus, you're dealing with the unique problems that come from dealing with everything from the Berkshires all the way here. So, you know, and, and, you know, obviously we're not a monolith. So what are some of the difficulties that you're seeing that are, that um, black business owners are facing um, in your work? Well, you know, uh, before we even get to the uh, unique issues facing the businesses, the first issue that I face when I joined the organization in which we're always uh, working to um, address is e even the word black. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, there, there is a very, uh, there are, you know, different pockets of our community have a very definite understanding of what it means to be black. For a lot of people, it's black means African-American. There are some non-African-Americans that believe that too. And so therefore do not at all uh, adopt uh, the moniker of black. They are Haitian. They are Nigerian, like my father. They're uh, or Caribbean, or you know whatever. Um, and so they don't identify as black or African American. They are their own group. Um, so that was the first thing that I walked into because there was even that debate at the board level, but then also in our membership uh, of of what that means. Now for me, I'm I'm a literal African American. My father is. Uh, came from Nigeria, uh, uh, moved here from Nigeria in the late 70s. And my mother is a descendant of African-Americans and, you know, grew up in Malden in Boston. Um, so I have both of those perspectives and have been, you know, navigating both communities my whole life. So I came in saying Black is the diaspora. Uh, when a police officer pulls you over, they don't first ask where you're from. All they know is that you're Black. Uh, when a... Um, uh, a loan officer at a bank denies you your mortgage uh, or your small business loan, they don't care if you're from the Bahamas uh, or if you don't even know how to identify seven generations back where your 
grandparents are from because they got brought over here in a boat. You're black, so you're a high risk. Um, so for me, it's important that we are representing all black people. And this also extends to our brothers and sisters who identify as uh, Latino, uh, because the same is true that they got all the only difference is they got dropped off at a different shore. Um, and the issues impacting them are, are the same ones that we have been dealing with for generations before them. So um, that's the first thing. So when you you ask this question about what's you know facing us, um, you know we actually just got back from doing a tour of Springfield and Worcester because uh, uh, last week uh, because it was it's again really important to me that we're not just saying that we represent businesses across the state, but that we are physically interacting with people in these areas because we I can't speak on behalf of of the Berkshires that have never been there. And I haven't seen the conditions or talked to the people. Um, and so in order for us to make sure that we are truly embracing our name, the intent behind our name to be the Black Economic Council of Massachusetts, uh, it's important to us that we are engaging our members in this way. So, you know, uh, in terms of the, you know, the issues outside of Boston are that all of the resources that are being discussed and created are not going beyond Route 128. They all stop uh, uh, after Greater Boston because, you know, lack of connections, uh, lack of uh, communication, you know, and, and again, you know, folks in Greater Boston, we see ourselves as an island. You know, we, you know, you said, it, Greg, uh, you know, a lot of people, when they think of Massachusetts, they think of Boston. Same is true for Boston. Lots of folks in Boston believe we are Massachusetts. Uh, and so, you know, it was important to me, too, that we went outside to let people know there is life beyond the city limits in Boston. Um, lots of opportunity. So, you know, the biggest thing is getting resources where they need to be. And that's why we've been doing these tours because, you know, the more relationships we have, the more people we know in these places, the more we connect to these millions of dollars uh, that are being either approved uh, by government or made available by uh, those in the private sector. Um, beyond that, you know, I would say one of the other things that I identify is that there is no BECMA uh, in these spaces. And a lot of people are either acting independently um, or are operating an advocacy group uh, as a side hustle because they have their own business to run. And so there is no strong um, uh, uh, grassroots organization uh, focused on, uh, on this particular group of, of individuals, of these stakeholders of Black businesses. Um, and so, you know, but after that, it's all the same issues. I mean, every Black business owner uh, has an issue uh, getting financing and capital. Uh, we don't talk about access to capital. You know, we talk about the dispersal of capital because we know where the money resides. You know, it, it's not hard to see where it is. It's just that they don't give it to us. Um, you know, every, uh, every uh, most Black businesses face an issue with procurement and uh, getting contracts either on the public side or the private side. Um, and a lot of our businesses, no matter where they are in the state, uh, have um, uh, infrastructure issues. So a lot of our businesses start off as sole proprietors, which means that it's just a single individual who's running and operating that business. Uh, and, you know, folks are, we are, we are brilliant and geniuses when it comes to the um, goods or services that we provide. Um, but there, there is so much poured into that, that we don't often have the time to make sure that we have the proper accounting system set up, uh, that we have, uh, that we have filed a trademark or copyright for whatever we're doing, uh, and, you know, and other legal issues, um, and a whole host of other back office issues that um, wind up either being ignored or just too difficult to manage that as well as the business marketing. Um, and so those are, you know, and those are low hanging fruit issues that we as an organization have stepped in to, uh, to resolve. But, um, you know, when it gets there, all of our businesses, it's, it's no different. It really just comes down to the um, access to resources. Love that you mentioned that, Chica. You know, thinking about as we're looking at the pandemic and the recovery from the pandemic, the Baker Polito administration recently released this future of work report, you know, outlining $2.9 billion that they'd be spending or as a proposed plan for the American Rescue Plan Act funds, uh, you know, noting the need for increased housing, childcare, transit supports. Uh, as we're looking at the future of work, where black and brown businesses have been slammed by, you know, lack of traditional access to pandemic unemployment assistance, other types of resources and networks and connections. What are your thoughts on how we can make sure uh, as we're looking for a new normal, how we can really recession proof and make sure that black and brown businesses can thrive here in the Commonwealth? 
Yeah. Well, the first thing is that we need some money right now. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, uh, the, the Delta variant is, you know, a month ago, I, I, I you know, uh, and I'm holding them to it. A month ago, I remember saying to some folks um, that work in state government, I won't call them out um, un unless they don't do what they're supposed to do. But, um, you know, a month ago, I was like, you know, what is the plan? If we have to shut down our businesses again, you know, there's another lockdown or we have to place restrictions again, saying 20% capacity, our businesses will not survive that at all. And when we met with our members in Springfield and Worcester, or we've heard from our folks in Pittsfield or Brockton or Randolph, the Vineyard, you know, uh, all are saying like, we need some money. You know, we, we can, we're hanging on by a threat of a threat. Um, and, and there was no plan because the response was, well, we're never going to get to that point. So, okay, four weeks later, mask mandates everywhere, uh, COVID getting worse, um, you know, and we might actually, you know, I don't want to be an alarmist, but I also, you know, think we should be planning uh, for, for any eventuality. Um, you know, you know, we're in a place where we were fearful. And the biggest thing for this is that um, it's not even so much whether or not COVID is uh, that much worse. It's uh, consumer confidence. If the perception of people is that COVID is the most, like, even worse than it was last year, they're not going to go out. Uh, they're not going to order delivery. They're not going to, you know, you know, all that kind of stuff. And that impacts our bottom line. Um, you know, and, you know, thinking about future of work, you know, work from home, I think is great for folks. Uh, it, you know, like when it comes to black folks, you know, having to not wait for an hour uh, or travel for two hours to work uh, and save that time to be home with the kids or, um, you know, or the, the amount of money that it takes to do all that every single day. That's great. But, you know, what it also means is that the more people that are working from home, that's less people that are out um, uh, patronizing our businesses. You know, I think of um, uh, uh, Soleil Boston uh, over in Nubian Square. Uh, you know, Cheryl is an amazing business owner and, and has a phenomenal menu. Uh, I encourage everyone to go there to the Bruce Bowling Building. Um, but of course, you know, there's like a thousand people that work in that building and they all work for the Boston Public School Department. Well, if most of those people are staying home, that is her business, you know, um, and, you know, uh, they originally sold Nubian Square as well. It's the biggest hub for transportation. Um, but folks are going from one bus to the other. They're not stopping for dinner or going to get their dry cleaning or whatever, you know. So so it's going to hurt um, our businesses. So when we talk about, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, protecting our businesses, the first part of it is capital. Um, the other part is ownership. That's the big thing that we're pushing right now. You know, we appreciated, uh, you know, the, the Baker Polito administration when it comes to the America Rescue Plan Act money, ARPA, um, put out a $2.8 billion proposal saying that, that at least $1 billion of that should be for home ownership and other housing programs. Awesome. And we, we yeah. support that, uh, particularly for our folks. But I also want a billion dollars for black and brown businesses. And I want a lot of that money to go for ownership uh, for the business owners of their uh, property. Because right now, when we talk about grants or even lines of credit or loans, our businesses are operating like pass-through organizations right now. If I give $10,000 to a restaurant, they're not using that money to pay their employees more. They're not using that money to buy a new uh, sink or a bigger refrigerator or to invest in outdoor patio. They're giving all that money to the landlord because they got to pay their rent and they haven't paid it for 18 months. Uh, mm. and, and, and oftentimes that landlord is not a black person. Um, and so, you know, so therefore we're getting this money and, and on the public side, you know, institutions or the government can say, oh, look, we gave 40% of our dollars to minority businesses, but it's all for naught if they don't get to actually use that money to invest in themselves. So it is grants and, and lines of credit. Uh, and if we're going to do loans, it has to be, you know, favorable for the business, but on the other side, it's ownership. Um, you know, and then the other piece of it is that we have to be investing in um, entrepreneur. We, we have to be, uh, and again, this is something that Beckman's doing, is working with uh, entrepreneurs to explore other industries. You know, when we think about uh, Black-owned businesses, the vast number of us are in low-growth industries. So we think of restaurants, hair care, personal care, uh, uh, retail, great things for us to be in, but there's also a ceiling for how well you can do unless you franchise and and you know, expand across the country. But beyond that, you're, you just have your one location and it just does not, it doesn't earn enough revenue. And with COVID, certainly not going to earn as much as you could because of the restrictions and folks just aren't going to feel comfortable being around a whole lot of people 
for a number of years. So we need to be, especially in Massachusetts, where we have at least three emerging industries here, cannabis being one of them. Um, the state still hasn't set up their equity fund. That's something we're going to fight about. Uh, green tech, $2 billion offshore wind project, $25 billion industry over 10 years. I mean, we certainly need to be making sure we're creating more entrepreneurs there. Uh, and then the life sciences. We're a hub for, for the life sciences, but we're not doing a whole lot to create black and brown entrepreneurs uh, in this space. So I think it, it's gonna take all of those things uh, to prepare us for the future, because if we're gonna say that the, that we're gonna live in a new normal, it means also uh, on the business front that um, you know we're moving to new industries that will be sustainable, earn us a lot of money, as well as uh, help our community. Well, I, the question I have is, as I listen to you, is there also some thinking that you guys are, you all are doing at BECMA or just that, or just this going on in terms of even an ecosystem or, or with businesses kind of feeding into one another. So for example, you use, a, you use a very great example of you have a business who is, you know, they don't own their, their space, but they're renting from um, somebody who's outside the community. You know, granted, we, you're, you're right. That if you own that building, it, it helps you root yourself. It, it changes your, your whole interaction. Um, but the idea of renting that from a, a black, um, black company means that money is kind of moving around in the community. We always talk about, you always hear those, those, uh, the, the, the conversations about how money moves around in each of our different communities. Is there some thinking about that, that you're doing with some of your work? Yeah, I mean, you know, at the end of the day, the work that we do is about fostering an ecosystem of entrepreneurship and making sure that that dollar recirculates in our community way more times than it is right now, right? I mean, the, the, the example everyone always uses is that for other communities, the dollar circulates in their community seven, eight, nine, ten 10 times. In our community, it's barely one. Uh, as soon as we get the money, it's going to somebody else, not in the community. So everything we're doing absolutely is focused on how we are circulating those dollars because it even comes down to like contracts, right? You know, um, you know, what we talk about with, um, uh, uh, with uh, government officials is, you know, we, we need to break up contracts that are too big. And the way we do that is by allowing a multiple, uh, uh, multiple businesses to bid on something. And now everyone's eating uh, as opposed to one person trying to grow big enough to, to get that contract, um, you know, uh, or even smaller firms uh, using each other for goods and services. The other part of it too is, is, is a co-op model. So um, for instance, um, we were going to do do it this way, but it wound up going another way. But uh, it, it, it was an example. We just helped uh, or worked with one of our business members to purchase their building um, in a neighborhood in Boston. Uh, there are five black businesses uh, on the ground floor uh, of this building. Originally, the owners of that uh, building were going to sell it from right up under them. You know, all they did was send a letter and said, hey, just giving you a heads up that we're selling the building, which, of course, caused alarm because what happens when you sell a building? Well, the new owner wants to refurbish it and kick everyone out and raise the rents and you have a whole new new crop of folks. So we stepped in as an organization and did all the things we needed to do. And we were like, hold on right now. We want them to at least be able to participate. Let them let them make an offer for you to say no to. Don't, don't just cut them out. So, you know, by working with um, agencies uh, like Mass Development, which is being led by a person of color, Dan Rivera, for, former mayor of Lawrence, you know, and this is an example of why leadership matters, which I'll get to, but then also the Southwest Boston CDC, you know, this, uh, the business owner who, or at least our member, was able to make an offer and now it was accepted because uh, it was market rate and they're going to get the building. Uh, what we were trying to explore but couldn't get there because of the limited time was, well, if there are five businesses, let each of them put something in so that they're all owners of that building and they're all their own landlords um, making decisions together. And that is certainly a model that we want to further explore and develop and promote across the Commonwealth because we have a number of folks who want to own their buildings and a lot of them are in buildings uh, where there are other business owners. And how fantastic would it be for uh, black folks to not just own the land, but if there are multiple businesses, all of them are profit sharing, um, you know, uh, in that in that building. And so the dollar is circulating right there and then to the employees, et cetera, et cetera. So absolutely, it's something that we are always focused on, um, keeping the dollar here as much as possible. Well, the beautiful part about what you just laid out is that it also, a, a, a byproduct of that is that it actually fights the, the rapid transformation of neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. you know, so if people are rooted in the community, they're there, you know, those businesses have a chance to grow and be there. 
And it's not one of those situations where we look up and all of a sudden, you know, the, the neighborhood's completely changed. Well, you know, and it's hard to have a conversation about affordability if you don't own anything, right? I mean, so I think about Roxbury where, you know, if you're going to tell me that 60, at least 60% of the people there are renters, how can you have a substantive conversation about affordability of housing or anything else because you don't own the land? And it's usually someone that doesn't even live in Boston, so they're not even listening to you. Um, and so, you know, for us, it's also about um, uh, boosting up our power when we're in the room because we're not folks that you can just uh, swat away. If, if, uh, if 25 black business owners who own their property walk into the mayor's office, that's gonna be a totally different conversation than 25 business owners who uh, are, are renting and are, are, uh, have back rent, like they, they still, still owe, right? And so, but it's also, you know, you're, you're always catching up uh, as opposed to building on something. So, you know, we, we, uh, we're, at the end of the day, I, I see our role at Beckman as building on um, the progress that our, uh, uh, our elders made, right? I mean, all the, all the um, protesting and promises that were made in the 60s, 70s, and 80s that have rapidly uh, fallen away, um, I see our role as pushing for not just that, but, but going further, particularly in this time. Um, because, you know, in, in my mind, you know, I've got nieces that are in their teens now. And by the time they're my age, uh, if they're yelling about the same things that I was yelling about, I'll, I'll be disappointed uh, and, and look at what we're doing as a failure because they should be yelling about something else, you know? Um, yeah. You brought up uh, the aspect of ownership. And, you, know, you talked about 60% of Roxbury being renters versus owners. As we're looking at two of the most consequential elections in Boston and Massachusetts. Are you going to um, get me in trouble? <laughs> no. We're, we're all friends gonna, here. We're just going to ask you a question. Whether you get in trouble or not, <laughs> not, not anything that we've done. Uh-huh. So, you know, Shigan, what would you say are your thoughts on the primary in Boston as we uh, look forward to the next couple of weeks and then ultimately out towards the gubernatorial election next year? Well, I will say at the outset of this answer that as the leader of a 501c3 nonprofit federally designated, we do not endorse candidates. Uh, and so uh, I will limit my response to the qualities and policies I want to see in a future uh, mayor rather than identifying a particular candidate that I may or may not be supportive of. But I will say um, it is exciting that we have this uh, slate of candidates. Uh, who are running and that we will have a, uh, uh, that we will most likely have a woman of color uh, who is the mayor of Boston. I think that is really important uh, because it will mean that for both women and people of color, um, we will have a mayor who does not need a crash course in what it means to be a woman or a person of color uh, when they're making decisions. Um, as much as I appreciate elected officials who are not of color, I guess, which is the opposite of that. I don't, um, although white is a color, but, um, but other, you know, officials who are white and usually white men, I appreciate many who do do their best to learn and understand at the end of the day, it's just different when you've experienced it. So I think that is the real exciting part for the city of Boston. Um, you know, and so what do I, so that's part of how I feel. And I guess the other piece is that um, uh, at the end of the day, though, we all, cannot rest. Uh, I think, uh, first of all, our liberation will not merely happen with uh, one person of color who's in the executive office of a city or town or state or even the White House. Uh, beyond that being a theoretical point, I think we have all the examples that will <laughs> lend themselves to proving that assertion. Um, you know, part of it is also that they need backup um, on places like the council or the legislature or whatever, and they oftentimes don't have that. But it also falls on us to hold them accountable. Um, you know, if we have a black mayor or an Asian American mayor or uh, who else, uh, you know, whatever, um, they, uh, I know at Beckman, we're not letting anyone get away with how they identify, um, you know, because, uh, you know, if your policies are not going to be supportive, I don't care whose name is on that. Uh, on that law, uh, we're going to hold them accountable. So, 
Um, but anyway, so but I think you know it, it's a consequential election. I think enough people are paying attention where they'll. I trust the people to make the right decision. Um, but no matter who wins, we're going to work with them and make sure that our agenda uh, is is uh, followed through on. For the gubernatorial election, also true. No matter what decision Governor Baker makes, it's a consequential election because whoever wins in 22. You know, the ARPA money is still around, and so they're going to have to be a faithful steward of the ARPA program. But then we're going to be coming, well, knock on wood, we're going to be coming out of COVID because we are, you know, as much as people are saying we are not, uh, we are not emerging out of COVID. COVID is very much still here. Um, but the hope is that by this time next year, we'll be finally emerging. And so whoever wins is going to be the person that is laying the foundation for what that recovery looks like. Um, you know, I, I will admit that that's also what is feeding into our expansion across the state and touching base with people because black people need to get organized and we want to be part of the uh, uh, part of the ecosystem that brings black people together uh, to make sure that our voices in one collective uh, or that, that, that we are heard in, in one collective voice about what needs to happen. Um, because the future for black people is uh, really critical. Uh, especially look at the census numbers that just came out. I mean, we, it is really important for us to have a say um, uh, in how that election shakes out. Uh, the last four or five years have proven that elections have consequences, whether you participate or not. And so, especially on the state level. So um, we're looking forward to um, influencing the conversation, I guess is what I'll say there. Yeah. And can you say a little bit about the black mass agenda and then also the minority business expo so listeners can find out more about how that can oh, yeah. shape in the conversation and convening uh, these partnerships and events uh in and for the black community yeah yeah uh so let's see where to begin uh for the black mass coalition um you know the unfortunate thing is that we made a lot of our black brothers and sisters after they're dead and that was true for brianna taylor and ahmaud arbery and of course we all saw the lynching of George Floyd. Uh, I'm not sure why, but for a lot of white people, this was a new thing. Uh, although I remember when I got into my age of reason is when Trayvon was murdered and then Mike Brown, Eric Garner, et cetera. Um, so, but white people were shocked by watching a lynching uh, for nine minutes. And so um, I remember getting a lot of phone calls the weekend that the video was circulating on, on national media from white people in the private sector. Uh, some people were crying, some people were apologizing. Um, but the one thing that, that they kept asking was, because you know, if you remember, not only was the video circulating, but the country was burning down. I don't, I don't know if you remember that, but uh, the whole, all these cities and towns from uh, you know, Schenectady to San Francisco were, uh, were on fire because people were, were, I think, righteously indignant and, and protesting. So uh, the, one, the one thing I was hearing from a lot of folks was, you know, what do black people want? Which is really, like, how do we get folks to stop destroying everything? Um, and so I thought about that for a little bit. And rather than me sitting down and saying, you know what, here's Beckman's list of demands. This is what we want. I was like, you know, this is a unique moment uh, for us to bring together, again, this collective voice. I will always believe in um, working collaboratively and in partnership, mostly because of, like we said earlier, the village, right? And so I want to make sure I'm replicating that in my leadership. So um, called up folks like Imari uh, at King Boston and Michael Curry at Mass League and Marie Francis at Mass Budget, Nia Evans, Sheena Collier, so many others to come together. And, and I was initially calling around and, and saying, hey, have you been talking to anyone? Has anyone called you? Um, are you putting together a list? And then just kind of organized a meeting where all of us came together, uh, black and brown and indigenous leaders from across the Commonwealth uh, to put together our united agenda. And so it eventually became something called a blueprint or the blueprint for the new world. Uh, and, uh, you know, we identified five different sectors, you know, uh, at that time, everyone was saying we want changes in police reform. And we were all like, a lot of other people are getting away here because they're not the only police aren't the only ones that they're not the arbiters of racism. They are, you know, they enforce it, um, but other people play a role. So the private sector, nonprofits, uh, philanthropic organizations, and the state and local government, we came up with five different things for them to do in Massachusetts to address systemic racism uh, 
And we're continuing to advance that. Um, and folks can find that on our website and our partners. Um, but, you know, uh, at the end of the day, it was a beginning. It's, it's how we can begin to address. There's a vast amount of things we have to do to address racism in Massachusetts, being the fact that we were the first colony to legalize slavery um, in the 1640s. Uh, even though we forget that and applaud ourselves for the 54th Massachusetts Regiment and fighting on the winning side of the Civil War. Um, but uh, so there's that. And then when it comes to the Mass Black Expo, you know, we hold, we've been holding that every year ever since a, uh, uh, in fact, it's someone that's running for mayor right now said in a council hearing um, that they wanted to do business with black and brown people, but they just couldn't find us. And so this, uh, I'm not going to, I don't know what words you can say on this podcast. I'm going to keep it clean, but it made me a little upset internally. And so uh, we started putting on this event called the Mass Black Expo uh, that tries to put all the black, you know, entrepreneurs in the room so they can't say they can't find us. Uh, and it's been a really great uh, tool for um, not only bringing black people together just to celebrate our excellence um, and be with one another, um, to learn from one another. Uh, but also to make uh, important connections and, and create new relationships between our business members and the decision makers when it comes to contracting. So on the, you know, whether it be procurement officers or investors, um, you know, we've been really successful at connecting people to business opportunities uh, with this tool. And this year, you know, because of our uh, putting a stake in the ground across the state, um, you know, it will be expanding and it will be fully uh, embracing the whole state so that all of the business owners who are here are participating and getting those connections made. Um, yeah. So, you know, the, the title of our podcast is Good Trouble, which we got from uh, the quote from John Lewis. And one of the things that, you know, when we, we talk to folks, you know, one of the things we think of is, you know, that fearlessness that was necessary that, he, that John Lewis was talking about, you know, not, not to be afraid of making good trouble. What, you know, from your experience, from where you're sitting, what are some of the suggestions of good trouble that our listeners could get into that could help advance um, your work or just us as, as a whole? Well, you know, one of the things I'm thinking of is even um, just what's guiding you, um, because you can get into, get into good trouble one day, but, um, you know, good trouble is a lifelong endeavor. Uh, and it's more than what you do on any one given uh, day or evening, but really what you're doing with your whole life to address an issue and really to solve the issue. Um, so I bring this with me wherever I go, but you know, whenever I talk about my grandfather, I talk about what he told me the last time I ever saw him in 2012 before I drove down to Morehouse, um, which is that we shouldn't confuse motion with progress. And that's the line that has guided me uh, in all this work. Um, whether it be for the body cam stuff, whether it be for uh, any of the other work I've done and then here at BECMA. Um, so the first is identifying what, what is your guiding principle? What is what is the work that you want to get in? Because that, um, that line uh, also set a timeline for me or really a deadline. You know, by the time, um, by the time I'm dead, uh, I want to have um, created progress uh, wherever I am. Um, and so because of that, honestly, that's really what informs everything I do. I, I'm only so uh, maybe it's a Napoleon complex too because I'm short. But you know, the the major thing though that uh, pushes me uh, is is that like I refuse to live in this life uh, and not have done something meaningful for my people um, that future generations can build upon. So I think it's about you know what's lighting a fire under you, um, and then ways to be involved, of course, is to uh, you know become a member of, of BECMA, but beyond that, you know, I don't care, you don't need to be a card carrying member of BECMA for us to support you. I mean, our goal at the end of the day is to eliminate the racial wealth gap to support black businesses. You know, if you ain't got the money, you don't need to be a member. Our goal is to get you to a place where you can have the money one day where it's a business expense and you're not even thinking about it. Um, and, and you're a member, a dues paying member. Um, but at the, you know, I think it's been connected to the different organizations that are out there advocating on behalf of different communities you know, especially for our community, these are all member-based advocacy groups. And so they get in the room with the people making decisions and they are, like I see myself as a giant parrot. Uh, when I'm in the room with the governor or a congressperson or whoever, I'm telling them what I'm being told from my members. I'm not running the business. Um, 
but it only happens when you're engaged. And so, um, you know, I would say, you know, getting involved with these organizations, bringing your ideas, being ready to do the work, because uh, most of our organizations are very small uh, financially and capacity wise. Um, and then, you know, uh, it's, you know, always staying up to date on what's going on. Um, but, you know, information is power. And if you don't know what's going on, uh, you know, you'll be too late. And that happens a lot in our community where we show up at the tail end of something as opposed to uh, being there from the beginning. So those might not be concrete things, but at, at least I think of um, the framework that should guide whatever that good trouble is. But that fire, because that fire also makes sure that when you're in the room with the decision makers, that you don't lower your voice uh, because you feel um, intimidated, but that you're sure in what you're pushing for and why you're pushing for it and who you're pushing for, and that you don't back down. And I think that's the the important thing about John Lewis and many of our other freedom fighters and freedom champions that they didn't back down because they knew the answers to all those questions. I like it. Reggie? Again, uh, this was an inspiring and a joyful conversation. Curious how folks can keep in touch with Beckman's work. Yes, uh, and my team will get mad at me, of course, if I didn't even end with uh, saying all that. Um, so, you know, we encourage folks to visit uh, our website, uh, which is just Beckma.org, B-E-C-M-A.org. Um, they can also uh, send us an email. It's just info at Beckma.org. Uh, and they can follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. I think we'll have a TikTok soon. You won't see me on there, but we'll have, you know, stuff like that. So, well, you know, th whatever the kids are doing these days. So. And TikTok with the soups, that's fine too. <laughs> and this guy's talking about whatever the kids are doing and he got this baby face. You know what I mean? <laughs> like he just got out of 12th grade. Well, I'm, 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 uh, I have been on the earth for 32 years, but my brain and my heart have been here for 70. So you know, I'm a, I'm an old soul. And if anyone ever wants to find me, I'm always at Mita Boston, a black owned Italian restaurant, uh, in the South end of, uh, of Boston, Roxbury, uh, great place. Yeah. As well as our other restaurants, you know, Daryl's, Wally's, Slade's, Biff's Lounge. Yeah. <laughs> you are not <laughs> oh man. Oh man. So hold on. Listen, thank you so much for being with us today. We appreciate your presence, man. We appreciate the incredible information that you, you shared with us, man. And we're looking forward to, to seeing you again down the road. Absolutely. Now, appreciate you all and congratulations on this. And thanks for the invite. Love y'all. And I'm sure we'll be seeing each other, you know, COVID protocols, of course. But, you know, I look forward to seeing you all in person soon. Thank you.